You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, and as you're opening your Bibles there, I want you to get in your mind the people, or maybe it's groups of people, who might be the most aggressively opposed people you can possibly imagine. Just start to get that in your mind. The the most aggressively opposed people you could possibly imagine. Maybe it's uh, rival countries like Iran and the United States, or uh, maybe it's uh, opposing political people, whatever you would call them, politicians, I guess that's the word for them. Donald Trump and Joe Biden, maybe. Maybe it's rival social groups, uh, Black Lives Matter and the KKK. Maybe it's opposing ideologies, vaccine mandators and anti-vaxxers. Maybe what comes into your mind uh, when you think about division like this is maybe more personal to you. Someone you, who you see as so polar opposite in their viewpoints and opinions that you could never possibly have unity with them. Maybe it's someone who has hurt you or someone who has hurt others you love. Maybe it's someone who should be close to you, a, a one-time best friend or even maybe a spouse. Maybe it's a brother or sister in Christ. But there's something between you and them that just seems like it's never going to come down. You see, we live in a fallen and broken world where sin and suffering cause divisions that sometimes seem insurmountable. And maybe it seems impossible for some of those groups that you thought of or some of those people that you thought of to ever be brought together. And let me just tell you, in the flesh it is. Often in the flesh, it is impossible to bring rival groups together. But today we're going to see that there is a reconciliation that's beyond imagination that is uniquely available to the people of God in the church of Jesus Christ. Today, as we study Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to see how Jesus reconciled two of the most aggressively opposed people groups imaginable and brought them into a new relationship with one another, and with God in one new body. So here's our big idea for the day. Demonstrate the supernatural reconciliation that Christ provides between his people and God. Demonstrate the supernatural reconciliation that Christ provides between his people and God. We're finishing out Ephesians chapter 2 today, and throughout chapters 1 through 3, where we, this section in which we find ourselves, Paul the Apostle is building a doctrinal foundation of the church, so that in chapters 4 through 6, he can then build upon that foundation for how we are to relate to one another, how we are to act as believers brought together in unity as the church. 
And so in chapter 1, Paul establishes that that God has lavished upon his people every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that is available to everyone who is united to Christ through faith. And he has blessed them ultimately as an act of his grace, which means that he gets all the credit, all the praise. And because of this common experience of gracious blessing that we have, we we have now been brought together in Christ. We we get to pursue knowing God through faith, hope, and love together. And so based on this fact, Paul begins to pray for this church and these groups of churches that they would know and understand all the fullness of the glory of God. All that God wants to do in and through his church as he redeems a people for himself. His deepest prayer is that the believers would get it, that, that, that they would just get it, that, they, that we would get how incredible it is that we get to be the church of Jesus Christ, the body of the one who has authority over all things, And that's my deepest prayer for us as we study this letter, that we would pursue the unimaginable vision that God has for his church so that we would give him much glory as a result of that, or or, or simply put, that we would get it, that that we would get the church, that we would understand our place in it, our part in it, the, the new thing that God is doing in this present age, his primary objective until he returns. And so as we entered into chapter 2, which we began studying last week in verses 1 to 10, Paul describes how each individual believer is incorporated into the church, that every single one of us were dead apart from God's gracious work, but through his gracious work, we were made alive and assembled together before the heavenly throne, seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and as such, we are his masterpiece. And that by his grace, he created us for good works, that we should walk in them. But we also acknowledged last week that that we are his masterpiece together, together. So each one of us is like one brushstroke at the hand of a master painter. Each one of us is like one well-crafted sprocket in a masterfully designed grandfather clock. Each one of us is like a single word in a perfectly crafted poem. We are each personally saved and recreated in Christ, but we are saved and recreated as parts of a whole. And so today, as we get into chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, we're going to see this whole parts of a whole thing even more clearly. This section is about our incorporation into the church from a a national or global perspective. How do the nations, how do the Gentiles come into a salvation that belonged to the nation of Israel? How do we relate to the people of God as they were defined under the old covenant? This section is about the idea that that we don't just receive a a new individual identity when we come to Jesus Christ. We receive a new corporate identity as his people. We're no longer primarily Gentile. Or you could say we are no longer primarily American. 
We're no longer primarily Republican or Democrat. We're no longer primarily any other identity that you would assign to yourself. We are primarily in Christ, together, a part of his body. Last week was incorporation into the church from an individual perspective. This week, from a corporate perspective, just a a little foreshadowing. Next week is from a cosmic perspective. And so let's read Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Bibles are open, every eye on God's word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Today, from this passage, we want to look at three keys to supernatural reconciliation. Three keys to supernatural reconciliation. The first is this, humble remembrance. We were at irreconcilable odds with God and his people. Humble remembrance. That's what Paul is calling them to at the beginning of verse 11. Notice how Paul starts this section. He says, therefore, and what's the question that we ask? Come on, louder. There it is. What's the therefore, therefore? So therefore, because we are Christ's workmanship, saved by grace for good works, therefore, remember. Remember what? Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. Let's pause there for a second. He's worked his way through the gospel for the believer in the first 11 verses of the chapter. Now, based on that understanding, he's taking them back to their pre-converted state, who they once were, once again. And we're going to look at this now. We're going to look at the gospel from another layer. So we, we got the individual layer. Now we're going to look at the corporate national identity layer. And to do this, he, he addresses a specific subset within the church, uh, those who were Gentiles. That, that is, th- these were people who were not naturally born 
into the nation of Israel. These were not people who were a part of the nation that God says was his chosen people. Now, we know that the Ephesian church had a lot of Gentiles in it because after Paul preached the gospel there for a while, you might remember in Acts chapter 19, uh, there was this whole uh, uprising by all of the idol manufacturers in the city of Ephesus, right? And, and, and they were mad because their business was starting to suffer because people were stopping buying idols because they were turning to Jesus Christ. And so what does that tell us? That tells us that there was a significant amount of idol-worshiping Gentiles that were now brought into the church in Ephesus. But especially in the first century, uh, that would have created quite a stir within who would have originally been in the synagogue, the Jews. There was a lot of confusion and even conflict about how Gentiles should now relate to God's people because Israel and Gentiles were naturally opposed to one another. Israel viewed the Gentiles as unclean because of their ceremonial law. The Gentiles were always trying to oppress Israel because they were a relatively small and weak nation. I mean, think about it. Your nation of Rome has conquered this puny little nation the size of New Jersey. And so when they were brought into the church through the gospel, they carried some of these perspectives, some of these conflicts with them. Those who were Jews by birth would ask, like, like, don't Gentiles need to be circumcised and start observing the Old Testament law now that they're following our Messiah? Aren't Gentiles somehow second-rate Christians because they weren't a part of God's chosen nation? At the same time, Gentiles might think, well, well, maybe we're more favored in the church because Israel had rejected their Messiah and their view of the law had not produced the righteousness of God. How terrible were those Israelites? And so Paul wants these Gentile believers in the church to remember who they once were, the corporate identity that used to define them. They were once Gentiles in the flesh. They were once called. Remember how we said we need to get that word once into our vocabulary, right? We, we need to remember where we came from, remember who we are. They were once at odds with God and with God's people. So first they need to humbly remember that they were at odds with God's people. That's where Paul starts in verse 11. He says, therefore, remember at one time, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Notice this is about what these two groups called each other. This is about their perspectives of each other according to visible, flesh-driven signs. So the Jews looked at the Gentiles and said, look at that uncircumcised sinner. God would never accept them and neither should I. To call a group the uncircumcision was to draw attention to the fact that they lacked the external ordinance or sign of God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant sign of circumcision. At the same time, Gentiles called the Jews the circumcision in a negative way as well. The Roman view of circumcision was that it was a handicap, a sign of weakness carried in the body which is generally how the outside world, like I mentioned, viewed Israel anyway. 
And so this very physical sign was a, a major point of contention in the early church. Should Gentiles be circumcised to become a part of the people of God? And should Jews be viewed as weak because of their circumcision? Their corporate identity was all about what they could see and do in the flesh that set them apart from others rather than who they were in the heart. These symbols of national identity and family heritage could easily become more important to them than their allegiance to Christ. And so Paul says, remember that those things once defined you. They once defined you, but they define you no longer. Now here's the thing. The external sign of circumcision was what the Jews and the Gentiles were all worried about, but really it was the least of their problems. That their lack of an external sign of the covenant only pointed to the fact that they lacked an internal heart relationship with God as well. They, They were not only at odds with other people, they were at odds with God himself. Look at verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. We have to understand that even though they didn't always really get what this meant, Israel really was God's chosen people. And through them, God really had promised to send the Messiah, the Christ, the the promised anointed Savior King. And if you were not part of Israel, you were separated from the hope of a Christ. Remember, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. You were separated from the idea that there was a King of Israel coming to restore all things together. You, You were separated from the idea that there was a promised king who would sit on David's throne. Because what would that have to do with you as a Roman? What would that have to do with you as a Gentile? That's, That's for Israel. That's their hope, not our hope. And so you wouldn't even know to expect a Christ. At least that was the perspective before Christ actually came. Not only that, that the Gentiles really were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So God had promised a specific nation, a specific blessing of a land where God would dwell with his people in a temple. Because God's manifest presence was physically located in Israel, there was actual real-life distance between the nations and God. Not only that, the Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of promise. The covenants of promise are are the promises of relationship that God made to Abraham and his offspring, to Israel at Sinai, to David, and then the promise of a new covenant where God would write his law on the hearts of Israel, his people. And Gentiles were strangers to all that. They were completely unaware of the fact that God had even made particular promises to a particular people. Israel would even celebrate this. In, in Psalm 147, we see this celebrated. He has, they, they would sing, He has not dealt with us. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Israel would be singing, No other nation knows the rules of God like we do. Now, that was a problem because they cast off the rules, and so they were held to even a higher standard for that. 
But the Gentiles had a, a real problem before Christ. The fact that they were not part of God's people meant that, with, that they were without hope and without God in the world. They were darkened in their understanding. They were trapped in the futility of their minds. They could not attain the purpose for which they were created. Death was a hopeless unknown. Now, here's why this is so important to us. Is anyone here a natural-born, practicing Jew? Ah. So we just have a whole bunch of Gentiles in the room, right? Which means that you can read this as directly written to you. Remember, you Gentiles. Remember. Everything Paul writes to these Gentiles was true of us. And we don't often think about this Jew-Gentile distinction because those, those conflicts were mostly resolved, at least in the church, a long time ago. But this is real when we look at the scope of redemption history. And even, even more, this description is the state of every person who does not have a gospel witness today. Yes, they are dead in their sin, like Paul described in the beginning of chapter 2, but they are also hopelessly isolated from even understanding the way to God. They are stuck in their disordered, divided, futile corporate identities. That's why you, you want to know why we have so much division in our country right now? Because everybody is fighting so that their corporate identity will be viewed as the most important one. Everybody is striving to find significance in this place, and they're in a futile effort because the only hope for a new corporate is a new corporate identity that is found in Jesus Christ alone. And all of these truths about Gentiles' former state acted like a massive wedge the size of Mount Everest, driving the Gentiles, the Jews, and God himself further and further apart. There appeared to be an irreconcilable division. And Paul tells the Gentile believers to remember that irreconcilable division. Why? Like, why do we need to remember something so damaging? Why call attention to the source of division? I thought we were going for reconciliation. Why, why are we talking about divisions? And what divides us? Why is Paul even using the word Gentile here? Shouldn't we just bury that in history somewhere? And I believe the reason was to produce humility in them. Yes, the Jews had some fault of their own for their arrogance, thinking that they were favored above the Gentiles and, and for misunderstanding how the law pointed to Christ and how they were supposed to be a light for the nations. In fact, Paul gives the Jews his own dose of their own dose of humility in the beginning of, of Romans. Go and read Romans, right? But the Gentiles also needed to remember that it was God's grace that even gave them access to any of these things. And remembering where they came from was meant to keep them humble. It's kind of like making sure that we remember our nation's history of slavery while we talk about racial reconciliation in America. We'd like to forget that. 
but remembering it can help us approach one another in humility. It's kind of like remembering Germany's history of the Holocaust against the Jews. They'd like to pretend that it never happened, but, but that's just providing the opportunity for it to happen again because pride creeps into our hearts so easily and makes us forget who we are, where we've been. But humility is the prerequisite for reconciliation. We cannot be reconciled to others if we think that we are superior, if we think that we must be all right and they must be all wrong. There's no reconciliation that happens at that point. If we think that we deserve God's grace and and that we are in God's good graces and they aren't, there's no reconciliation that happens. If we somehow think that we earned our, our way into this relationship through some sort of external conformity, there is no way that we can be reconciled to others. No, we need humility. And humility comes at least in part from honest remembrance. We remember what it took for us to be restored to God. We remember how we were so unlovable and undeserving, but God saved us while we were still dead in our trespasses. We remember that we had no place in God's people. And then we we begin to realize, like, where would we be without God's grace? We begin to expect that that there are probably going to be some major differences between us and others in the church that we're going to need to work through. We begin to expect that there are going to be some rough edges that need to be smoothed off from us and from others. And that people are probably going to let us down because we all have remaining sin, but grace is given to empower growth. There is no reconciliation if there is no grace, and there is no grace if there is no humility. Because grace flows to the humble. Humble remembrance paves the way for God to do this massive work to bring hostile, ignorant unbelievers in relationship with himself and each other through the gospel. That's how he creates the church. That's how you are even sitting here today, getting to listen to God's word, getting to sing God's praise, getting to enjoy God's presence and his people. Don't forget how awesome this is. And this is the work that Paul describes in verses 13 to 18, what God did to get us here. Look at verse 13, but now, remember the but now in verses one to 11, the transition point, we got, we're, we're now seeing a very similar theme but now in Christ Jesus, you, were one, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. In order to demonstrate supernatural reconciliation, we need humble remembrance. Secondly, we need heart-level redefinition. 
heart-level redefinition. Christ reconciled us by his blood to God and his people. Christ reconciled us by his blood to God and his people. If we only have humble remembrance of who we once were, but we don't understand how we have now been redefined in Christ, then we're still going to lack the power to demonstrate reconciliation. So Paul says in verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul summarizes all that he said about the Gentiles before in these two words, far off. You want to you wrap up everything else in, that, in those previous three verses that you were far off. The chasm could not have been wider. The, the separation and the animosity between Gentiles, Israel, and God could not have been greater. But now you have been brought near. Not only is the cavernous gap between us and God and his people closed, there's not even a crack in the sidewalk left. You have been brought near. How could such an expanse be closed? Paul kind of makes it sound so simple. He says it so quickly, and it it is simple, but it was not easy. It was not cheap. It was costly. Gentiles have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. Now, when we read those words by the blood of Christ, our minds immediately go to his work on the cross when his blood was spilled. And I, that is definitely, definitely part of it. But I think that Paul has something a little bit broader in mind because he's talking about the cross of Christ later after saying a few other things about his life. And so, so I believe by his blood refers to all of his incarnation. Christ brought us near by coming near to us, by taking on human flesh and blood. I believe that by his blood refers to all of the work that Christ did while blood was coursing through real human veins. The fact that it required the incarnation of God, the Son, for us to be brought near to God and his people. And the phrases following, including the crucifixion, further define how he worked by his blood. So the first work of his incarnation is in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul is referring to the unique personhood of Jesus Christ as the God-man. That identity of God in human flesh uniquely positions Christ to restore peace between God and man. He's the one who closed the gap. He is our peace. And he did it by taking on the likeness of sinful flesh, removing the separation that once existed between us and God. When Jesus was born in the flesh, the angels announced, do you remember, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus came to personally mediate peace between us and God and between us and others who found favor in his sight through grace. Peace is the restoration of the right relationships of things. Peace is putting things back together in proper order. The the relationships between people and God, the relationship between people and each other, between people and themselves, and between people and the whole creation. Jesus is 
our peace. And in our sin, we build up dividing walls of hostility between each other, racial walls, status walls, ideological walls, walls of unforgiveness. There can be no dividing wall of hostility allowed in the church because Christ came to tear it down. God tore down the walls that stood between us and him. He showed that we all come to him through Christ, that we are all in the same boat, that we are all in the need of the same grace. And so Jesus freely gives that grace so that we can then give that grace to each other. If if you can't give grace to someone else, go back and remember. Humble yourself. Remember how much it took for Christ to forgive you. And then you can be reconciled to one another. That's what David read earlier at the the call to worship. Jesus redefines our hearts through his personhood. And because he came in flesh and blood, he both then fulfilled the law and abolished the law. Paul says in verse 15, he tore down the dividing wall of hostility in the flesh by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, didn't Jesus himself say, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. If you're not thinking that to yourself, he did say that. And so we need to understand that that Jesus did not abolish the law in the sense that he did away with the moral requirements of God, in the sense that he did away with all of the promises of God that were found in the law. He abolished the law in the expression of ordinances. All that disagreement about the circumcision and the non-circumcision stuff, all of the ritual cleansings and the animal sacrifices, those are all done away with in Jesus because he provided the ultimate cleansing. He was the ultimate sacrifice. He was the one who could circumcise our hearts. And he provided something deeper for his people than the external expressions of religion. He provided heart-level redefinition. And that redefinition came ultimately through the cross and resurrection. That's the pinnacle of it all, right? Look at verse 16. That he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus took the flesh and blood of his incarnation and had it crucified on a cross. That's how he both fulfilled the law and abolished the ordinances. Don't forget how Paul described Christ's work on the cross in chapter 2. It wasn't just Jesus dying on the cross, right? Spiritually speaking, it was also all those who put their faith in Christ Jesus. Because we are in Christ, we were in him in his crucifixion. Our old identity under the dominion of sin died with him. And because we were in him in his death, we are also in him in his resurrection. He killed the hostility between us and Israel by literally crucifying former 
flesh-driven distinctions that defined us and made us hostile to one another. And he gave us new lives and a new common identity. The old self is crucified, the new self is put on, and we have that new self together in Christ. But he didn't stop there. He, he made sure to get the word out, right? And so look at verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. Jesus redefined our hearts through his preaching of peace. But if you're perceptive, you would ask the question, when did he do that? If we're following this gospel storyline, he, he lived, he fulfilled the law, he died, he rose, and then he preached to the Gentiles? I, I don't remember reading any of that in any of the gospels. Do you remember that? When did Jesus come and preach peace to the Gentiles in Ephesus and the surrounding region? He came and he preached through the missionaries and preachers that went to that place. That's awesome. When you really begin to think about it. By the way, I didn't notice it at first either. Keith Martin sent me a great article that you should go read on the Gospel Coalition this week by Sam Albury. I'll put it in the email this week. But when messengers of Jesus preach the good news of the gospel to the nations, Jesus is preaching. You need to understand that right now, as I proclaim the good news to you, Jesus is preaching. Now, don't misunderstand that. I'm not saying that I'm Jesus. And I'm not saying that my words are equal to the words of God, right? But I am saying that he is the one and the only one who will bring about redefinition to your life as the result of his word being preached this morning. He's the one preaching through me anything that is right and true and good and redefining for your life. The second Helvetic confession says this, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Insofar as the preacher accurately and faithfully proclaims the truth of God's word, then God himself is speaking. Jesus is preaching through preachers and people Hearing who are faithful receive that. The message being preached then is peace, reconciliation, the restoration of right order of things and people coming together with one another and God in Christ alone. Not just saying, peace, peace, it's all good. Don't worry about anything. Be happy. Feel good in yourself. No, no, no. Peace through Jesus Christ alone. And notice it's, it's peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Jews and Gentiles needed to receive the same message of peace because even though the Gentiles were at a disadvantage of being far away from the promises and presence and people of God, Israel had squandered all of those privileges in their sin. They were not able to be faithful to God on their own. They needed the message of peace and they needed the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Remember in chapter 1 to 113, he said, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 
And so it's our, the Holy Spirit who is our all-access pass to the Father. We get the full meet-and-greet backstage pass to come into God's presence and fully know Him, Jew and Gentile alike, because we have been saved through the, through the same gospel. Jews and Gentiles both experienced a heart-level redefinition of their identity. And so we are no longer defined by our external differences or by our family heritage and lineage. We are defined by union to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here's Paul's point. The work of reconciliation only comes through embracing Christ by faith and coming into that union. The world would say, uh, pick a side, make one side look utterly good, the other side look utterly villainous, and then make sure that everyone gets onto the same side. How well is that working? The world would say that we're going to find peace when we put pressure on everyone else to be just like us. Or if we can get everyone to compromise and maybe find some halfway point between our differences so that none of us actually hold on to any convictions. But true peace is not found in me making you conform to my image or me conforming to your image of perfection. It's about us together conforming to the image of Christ. Peace is not a 50-50 compromise. It is a 100-100 sacrifice going all in on Christ. Each of us allowing our entire identity to be redefined by Jesus and Jesus alone. It's about us together trusting that the blood of Christ is the only way to right relationship with God and the only true hope of finding peace on earth. And peace and reconciliation is found when we embrace our common identity in him. Have you embraced him fully? It will not move beyond that point. And your difference is with other people if you have not both fully embraced Christ. And if you have embraced Christ, then you have everything you need to rec be reconciled to God and others. Jesus has not only made reconciliation possible, he's made reconciliation real. He's made it real. And I want you to see this in verse 19. Look at the results of Christ's work. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In order for us to demonstrate supernatural reconciliation, we need humble remembrance, we need heart-level redefinition, and finally we need holistic reorientation. Holistic reorientation. God reconciled us to himself so that we would be his people together. We have to reorient our lives around that truth. We need to actually believe that Jesus has accomplished this work of reconciliation and that he actually intends for us to live in the good of that. 
must come to understand that our new corporate identity in Christ is so radically different than what we once were so that we can demonstrate it to the world. In this section, Paul gives us four pictures of the church that help us envision this type of reconciliation that God has provided for the church. We, we need to orient our whole lives around this corporate identity. The first picture is this. We are parts of a new body. We are parts of a new body. This one actually comes up earlier than these verses in, in verses 15 and 16. We are created in Christ Jesus as one new man. We are reconciled in one body. And because of our common reconciliation to God in Christ, we're, we're reconciled together as parts of the same body. The, the image of the body comes up again and more clearly in Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul especially likes to use this image when he's talking about spiritual gifts and how much we all need each other. See, God equips his body through the various gifts of each part of the body. And it requires each part working effectively for the body to grow into maturity in Christ. That means your health affects the health of other people in our church. And their health affects you. And we work together to produce health in one another by speaking the truth in love. And so the picture of a body also emphasizes the fact that, that we are all needed and we need one another. We are all body parts. We're not body accessories. Like some people treat the church like they're, they're just a belt or a purse or a wallet instead of a hand or a foot. Like I, I can go without a belt, maybe. But I can't go without my hand. The picture of the church as a body emphasizes that we are needed and we need others in the church. And so I can't say to you, I don't need you, and you can't say to me, I don't need you. If we're in Christ then he has designed it so that we need each other. He's ordained that the work that gets done in us, some of that work only happens through the vessel of another believer. But the body only gives us one angle of the reconciliation that God wants us to accomplish. Paul needs four pictures for this, right? So the second one is part of a new kingdom. Part of a new kingdom. Paul says in verse 19 that we are fellow citizens with the saints. Remember that at one time you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, right? And now you're fellow citizens with the saints. We were aliens, not like little green Martians, right? But those who lack the rights and privileges of God's country, of God's kingdom. And now we're citizens. We're under a new authority. We've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. He determines our di direction. He endows us with his kingdom blessings and privileges. But we're not merely part of a new kingdom like, like peasants who never have a chance of having an audience with the king. We are part of a new kingdom as also part of the royal household. We are part of a new family of a new family. Paul, verse 19, Paul says that we are members of the household of God. 
members of the household of God. We, we say it a lot here. I'm going to start it. You're going to finish it, okay? The church isn't just like a family. It, yes, it is a family. Our reconciliation with God makes us genuinely his children. And children of the same father are called brothers and sisters. That's why it's frequent to read the word brothers in the New Testament letters and in Acts. It wasn't just a cultural nicety. It was how they truly viewed each other. If the picture of a body emphasizes that we're all needed and the picture of citizenship, that we are all under a common authority, the picture of family emphasizes that we are reconciled together in God's love. In God's love. The reconciliation that Christ provides and the bond that he creates is stronger than the bond of blood because the bond of love is eternal. Jesus said, who are my brother and mothers and sisters? Is it not those who do the will of my father? In other words, he's saying those who follow God, the the people of God, the church is our truest family. And in Lancaster County culture, where where blood family is highly valued, it's important to realize that this idea is going to take some radical reorientation of our thinking. Radical reorientation. I'm not saying that we should not value blood family, right? Don't, Don't hear me saying that we just throw off blood family for the sake of other relationships. Paul wrote to Timothy that if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever, right? But I don't think that's our tendency in Lancaster County typically. We need to be careful not to put those relationships completely above the relationships that we have with the family of God. We need to put them in right respect, perspective with our spiritual family. And our church family is to play a unique role in our lives in helping us to follow Jesus. We should treat them like family. Not not just like acquaintances with whom we casually interact on occasion when it's convenient. Not just like co-workers with whom we get the job done. Not just like fellow citizens with whom we share a national heritage. No, no, no. Like family. Like those who have a deep personal connection to one another that is abiding and lasting. People whom we are responsible for and devoted to. Because it's among this spiritual family that God is making his dwelling place. We are parts of a body. We are his kingdom, his family. Finally, we are part of his temple. Part of a new temple. Look at verse 20 to 22 built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The last picture of a a temple is all about the, the worship of God, seeking the presence of God and his glory as our highest delight and our highest aspiration. And it's true that the Bible describes each one of our bodies as a temple of the Holy Spirit, but it emphasizes that those spirit-indwelt bodies are built together as a dwelling place, a holy temple for the Lord. 
And that happens as we're built upon the common foundation of Christ Jesus as he was proclaimed by the apostles and the prophets. The picture here is you know, a picture of foundation that, that is being laid. It usually is, is laid off of a, a corner and going out to the sides, right? And so Christ Jesus is pictured as the cornerstone, the, the one who sets everything in line and everything is built off of him. But the apostles and the prophets, as they proclaim Jesus Christ to the world, they provide our understanding of that foundation of Jesus Christ. He is the stone that the builders rejected. He is the stone that the Gentiles had no access to. And he is the stone that sets the rest of the structure of the church in place so that we can be a dwelling place for God. And God shows himself in particular ways through our togetherness. The unity of his redeemed people who make up his church. That's the work of the Spirit that he's doing in the church. And so the question is, will we reorient our entire lives to this reality? Will we see this as our part of our identity in Christ, that we have a corporate identity that is the church of Christ? Will we live out these pictures that are true of us because we are in him. Will we act like the body of Christ actually needs us and we need the body, that we have a part to play, like a hand or a foot, or will we be content to, to go to church just like we're an accessory or like the church is an accessory to us? Will we submit to Christ as his citizens, accepting his authority and enjoying his rule and reign? Will we extend the love of Christ to one another as his family? Recognizing that in Christ, full forgiveness and full relationship is available and necessary. Will we seek his presence and his glory as his temple? Will we worship him together as his people? Jesus Christ is the only hope for true reconciliation, and his church is the expression of it. And so let's demonstrate the hope of that reconciliation to a world who desperately needs it. Let's pray together. Father, perhaps this idea of reconciliation seems like a, a pipe dream to some. And we confess that because of the fallen world in which we live, the fullness of this reconciliation will not be full experienced until we see you anew in heaven, but we ask for the foretaste of it now. We ask for a supernatural humility to come over us as we remember what you've done and what you had to do for us in Christ because of where we were. 
Lord, help us to live out of the definition of who you have made us to be in Christ. And help us to reorient our lives around that. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.